to be two and a half years old than seeing people walking around your room that you'd never seen before. You knew they weren't real people like I can see my husband or my children. They were more faint, more transparent, but they were definitely there. I was having these visions. And I would wake up screaming and I've got rosaries hanging all around my house because of the spirit activity, thinking I'm going to be able to ward it off or something. They're all facing backwards now, facing the wall. My daughter looks over at the wood crucifix and it's hanging upside down on the wall. All of us at some point remember a night when we lie awake for some inexplicable reason, imagining horrible faces in the closet or the fabled monster under the bed. But for some, it's not merely a night, but a lifetime. A never-ending encounter with forces beyond most people's ability to conceive, much less perceive. This is the extraordinary story of Nikki Luciano. Yeah, I don't know what happened. All of a sudden, my computer just died. It was weird. Well, I was hearing something. Like, it was getting worse and worse. So, it sounds good now. But I was camping when I read your book. Oh, really? Yeah. We were, so we're sitting around a campfire and everybody's talking and stuff and I'm reading your book, right? And my wife never reads fiction anymore. She's completely type A. If she's reading something, it's to better herself or to get more knowledge, blah, blah, blah. Well, she sounds like a brilliant woman. Yeah. But I was like, read a little bit of this. And she plowed through the whole book. She's like, this lady's really good. So then I loaded it out and uh, everybody started reading it, but I actually took a picture of it. I don't know if you saw, I think I posted it, but I said, this is why I don't loan my books out. And it is so ragged and dog-eared and bent for the people going through it. I'm sending out your autographed copy this week. So I, I have to just take a break. If you could see me now, you wouldn't recognize me, but I am sending out your book this week, I promise. But uh, I will. I've been looking forward to doing a show about paranormal author Nikki Luciano for a long time. I've always had a fascination with the subject, as well as having experienced some seriously dark events in my past. Things that seem beyond rational explanation. We didn't get too far into the conversation before I began to hear strange feedback in my headphones. Nikki didn't hear it, but she could see by my reactions that something was off continued throughout the recording, and unfortunately, I had to lose little bits of audio here and there. And while much of it I could visually see was a mere distortion of my own voice, somehow bleeding into her soundtrack, other samples were not so easily explained away. It's a strange world that surrounds this fascinating woman, and if you choose to continue to listen, well, you've been warned. When I first started experiencing paranormal activity, it was through vision. The Urban Dictionary has defined a term to describe the process of making a person extraordinary. I would see spirits. A traumatic trial by fire that will define not only their future, the essence of who and what they are to become. Back in the late 60s and 70s, if you would have talked about things like that, you would have been locked up. I'm William Cross. This is Extraordination. My name is Nikki Luciano. I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1963. My earliest memories were probably back when I was about 18 months old. I was in my crib and I remember hearing my mom screaming for somebody to get away from me. I wiped my eyes and looked around and I saw a woman who was wearing a pale blue dress with a white veil type thing on her head. I remember being that young thinking it was a tablecloth. Now that I'm an adult, I think it's more like when you see the Blessed Mother Mary. I didn't have any fear of my own. It was a calming feeling. I was afraid of my mom's reaction. I remember I didn't cry, I just, I was curious. I think I've always been curious and that's why I got into some of the predicaments I got into. I remember one time when I was in the sandbox, I was like two years old, I'm in the sandbox, my grandma's out there playing with me, 
The phone rings in the house. She goes into the house to answer the phone. And this man approached me and started talking to me. And he was a older gentleman. He was dressed all in black, a long black coat with a black fedora. And he had long scraggly gray hair. And he was talking to me. I remember I was wearing a pink fluffy jacket and those white fluffy winter hats. So it had to be starting to get cold in Wisconsin. And the next thing I know, my grandma's running out of the house, screaming at him to get the hell away from me. My neighborhood that I grew up in was the east side of Milwaukee. The big popular street there is Brady Street. We lived on Arlington and Brady. The houses were real big houses, but it was a poorer neighborhood. You know, it wasn't a fancy rich neighborhood. I lived right down the street from my Aunt Eden and my Uncle Kevin. And they had three kids that I grew up with, my cousins, Kevin Jr., Sally, and Sarah. And we were all within about a year of each other in age. And we hung out together like brothers and sisters. We were always together. We were thick as thieves, I guess. Just a typical middle-class Milwaukee home. My dad, he was the chief mechanic on a pit crew for a racetrack out here in Union Grove, Wisconsin. My dad was my world. The sun rose and set on that man. He was my hero, you know, he was my Superman. He protected me, I felt safe with him. We would drive down the street in his 59 convertible Cadillac. We didn't have seatbelt laws back then, so I would stand on the seat next to him as he drove and I had my arm around his neck. I would wave at people as they were driving by and I felt like a superstar, like a rock star, you know, being with my dad. I just knew that when I was with him, I was safe, nothing would ever happen to me. My mom, she was standoffish. I didn't have a close relationship with my mom back then. I preferred my dad. Like I said, he was my world. She was just my mother. Oh, gosh. I remember when I was about probably two and a half years old. I used to get dressed up for him to come home every day, and he would always call me baby, you know, his beautiful baby. And one time in particular, I got all dressed up. I had my little Mary Jane shoes on. My hair was up in pigtails. And I was stood by the door, as I always did, waiting for him to come home. And I waited and I waited. And I couldn't figure out why it was taking him so long to come home. I ended up falling asleep right by the door, like a dog, waiting for him to come home. And when I woke up, he still wasn't there and he never came back. He just, he left and I thought it was my fault. I had been having experiences with paranormal activity. I was seeing uh, spirits walking around my room and I would wake up crying and screaming and freaking out because, you know, it to be two and a half years old and seeing people walking around your room that you'd never seen before, you knew they weren't real people like I can see my husband or my children they were more faint more transparent but they were definitely there and I would wake up screaming when my dad left I thought that was why you know I thought that's why he left me was because I was having these visions but when I was around five he kidnapped me right from my grandma's house I was living with my mom my grandma and uh, my uncle, who is only a year older than I am, he just came into the house with his brother and uh, one of his buddies kidnapped me and my grandma was freaking out and screaming and ranting and raving. And he just took me out of the house, took me where he was living at the time, Appleton, Wisconsin. And I was happy. I was with my dad again. I got to see my grandma and my grandpa on his side. I was only there a little while, maybe a month or two. And then the police came and got me. I remember being so angry that the police came to take me back because I was where I wanted to be. I even kicked one of the police officers in the groin and they brought me back home. Oh, my mom and aunt and my grandma and everybody, they hugged me and they were naturally happy to see me. 
But all they did was sit there and talk smack about my dad and what a piece of garbage he was. And they tried to influence my way of thinking. It didn't work. I've always had to find out things on my own. And I had to find out the hard way. And that's what I based my life on is, you know, my life, my way. As I got older, more and more things would happen. When I first started experiencing paranormal activity, it was through vision. I would see spirits. It wasn't until I was probably around five that I started hearing them talk. And I mean, I would hear bits and pieces before that, but not complete conversations. When I was around five, I was laying in my bed and I could hear them talking about me, saying that they needed to protect me and they needed to guard me. I remember laying in my bed at five years old and seeing the closet door open and then seeing people walking out of there like they were entering into a building, talking to each other, milling around like people walking in a mall and just conversations. And I remember being scared to death and screaming for my mom. And she'd always come in and say that I was dreaming or waking up from a dream. And she'd give me her crucifix necklace and put it around my neck and tell me that as long as I was wearing it, nothing could hurt me. But that wasn't the case. They still came. They still walked around me and still talked. And I'd wake up the next day and I'd be like, so what was going on? Why were there people in my room? And she said, you were just dreaming, just dreaming. I never said a word about it until I was probably about 14 or 15. I've had so many experiences throughout those years. And I just thought I was like demon spawn or something. I thought that God had abandoned me to let me go through that. I didn't think I was worthy of God's love, and that's why this was happening. When you hear other people talking about ghosts and things like that back in the 70s, because that's when this was, back in the late 60s and 70s, if you would have talked about things like that, you would have been locked up. That's where all those asylums came from. And that makes me wonder how many of those people were actually insane. You know, so I really didn't get to tell anybody. I really didn't have any friends growing up. I was always the odd man out. We had moved like 29 times in my childhood. I was always the new kid. People just didn't talk to me unless it was to target me for bullying. I was an easy target because I was quiet and my mom was a single mom. She dressed me in what she could. I wore Goodwill clothes and Salvation Army clothes. One time in particular, I was wearing these pair of white pants. And I remember I loved them. It was like 1973. And I loved these pants. They were white bell bottoms and they zipped up the back. That's why I loved them. They were different. And I remember wearing them into school and this girl turning around and looking at me and then she looks at her friends and she says oh my god dog face is wearing my donated pants you know they were like how do you know they're your pants she said because my mom hand stitched the cuffs and she walked up to me and she lifted my pant leg and showed where her mom had hand stitched the cuff i was beyond embarrassed i was crying and they made fun of that and you know it, it, it was just torment uh, you know bullying bullying picking nitpicking anything I said or did or wore and it didn't help that I was wearing glasses as a kid I was the four-eyed freak even in junior high um, they called me flatsy patsy and I know as an adult now that they had miserable lives and that's why they target other people. But you don't want to add fuel into that fire. If I would have said anything about spirits or ghosts or anything like that, then it would have just, it would have erupted. The bullying would have been even worse. Until I was about 14, it was mostly at night that I saw the spirits. 
my dad, he used to say, I can take her anywhere and she can point out where somebody had passed away. Sometimes I get like a chill up my back. Otherwise, sometimes I'll pick up a smell of a person. There's even times that I pick up an image, a face will come into my mind. And I just know, I, I don't know how to explain it. It's just like a sixth sense. I just know. My dad used to walk into the room when he was there and I'd be having conversations with this man in the corner. And once I turned like 14 or 15, it just started progressively getting worse. That's at about the time that I actually started being able to smell when they were around. You know, like today, if I smell roses or ivory soap, I know my grandma's spirit is present. I don't even have to look for her. I don't have to listen for her. I can smell her. My stepdad's father used to wear Old Spice cologne. And if I smell Old Spice cologne now, I know he's there. And I'm not talking if you're walking into a store and you smell it. I'm saying if I'm sitting here at home and I'm all alone and all of a sudden this smell just overtakes me. I have a scent for everybody. Everybody that I meet, I pick up a smell and I'll remember their smell forever. So when they pass, then I can always tell when they're around. I was like 14 and I had had it with the bullying, plus with all the spirit activity going on, and I still hadn't figured out why I was having the spirit activity. But the bullying was just horrible. One particular time, I was walking down the street and a, a group of girls circled me and I was scared. I was beyond scared. I mean, I weighed like 85 pounds. I was not even five foot one at the time. We were in high school and these girls just came up. They circled me. They were pushing me. They were calling me everything that they could think of. It was dog face and taking swings at me and, and trying to knock me off my balance to get me to the ground. And I wasn't going to let that happen. I didn't want to give them the satisfaction of seeing me cry. This girl just connected with my jaw and fractured it. I remember hearing my jaw just crack. My lip was split, blood pouring into my mouth. I wouldn't let the blood out of my mouth. I wouldn't let them see my blood. And I was scared to death. I, I thought I was going to die. I thought they were going to kill me. And this was right on the main street. I was like, maybe a block from my house. All I could think of was, I got to get home. And I wouldn't let them get me to the ground. They'd take swings at me and I'd brace myself so I couldn't be jolted by one of the blows to the face. And I took blow after blow after blow to the face. One girl was pulling my hair and trying to get me to the ground at the same time. And I just swallowed this blood and I wouldn't shed a tear. I wouldn't let my jaw quiver or anything. And they kept taunting me. Come on, dog face, hit me back, hit me back. And I wouldn't. They finally gave up and they walked away laughing about the whole situation. And I was like in disbelief that they let me go. And I remember walking home, walking into my house. My mom was on the phone with my grandma Rose at the time. She saw the blood starting to come out of my mouth because I gave up swallowing it. She slammed the receiver down on the phone and followed me into my room and asked me what had happened. And that's when I let the tears go. I said, they all beat me up. I don't know why. She called the police, took me to the hospital. I remember asking myself how people could be so mean and uncaring and insensitive. And I gave up. I thought I'd be better off dead. So I uh, went into the medicine cabinet and I took all the pain medication that they had given me at the hospital. I took my stepfather's Valiums and I took a bunch of sleeping pills. All in all, I think I took about a hundred pills 
The next thing I know, there were men trying to lift me up off the floor in the bathroom. I did not want to live. I fought them. I wanted to lay there and die. They got me to the hospital, and the next thing I know, I wake up and I've got all these tubes coming out of my arms and my nose, and I ripped them out. And I remember thinking, you are such a f up, you can't even die. You can't even die right. You're worthless. I ripped out the tubes and the needles and I went running with the open back hospital gown and I was looking for any way to finish the job. I thought, I'll jump out a frickin' window, I'll grab something sharp and I'll stab myself. I was looking for doctor's needles, anything that I could find. It took four security guards to wrangle me back. I remember screaming, why do you want me to go back there? They're just going to kill me. One of the guys actually took a couple steps back from me and he openly wept. And he said, what could they have done to make her want out so bad? In Wisconsin, teenagers that attempt suicide have to stay in this facility for three days. It's a 72-hour hold. I remember my grandma Rose was the only one in my family who showed up, anybody that I knew that showed up. And uh, I was so drugged still after having my stomach pumped, my head felt like I went on a bender. I mean, I was wasted. And I remember my grandma sitting there in the waiting room for me to come out to talk to her. And there were other teenagers there that had attempted suicide and stuff like that. And they're kind of like listening in on the conversation. My grandma stood about five feet tall, maybe, and only weighed about 85 pounds as well. But she was tough as nails. And she said, what the hell happened? And I had told her what had happened. I could see her getting angrier and angrier. And I thought, yay, grandma's on my side, you know, she's going to beat these girls' asses. Nope. My grandma was mad as hell, but at me. She said, if I ever find out again that you stand there and you let somebody beat you like that, she says, I'm going to beat your ass and then I'm going after them. I was kind of upset and I, I never got that image of my grandma, her anger and her disappointment out of my head. That was very powerful. After that, I went home after my 72-hour hold. My mom and my stepdad acted like nothing even happened. They had locked up all the medication, which I found to be laughable because all I had to do is go down the street to the Walgreens and I could buy sleeping pills over the counter if I ever wanted to do it again. But I didn't because I never wanted to feel as sick as I felt. Even 72 hours later, I was still wasted. I just decided I had enough of this shit and that I wasn't gonna ever let it happen again. I couldn't get my grandma's face out of my head. That was one woman I never wanted to disappoint because she was just as important to me as my dad was. So I decided I was gonna sit down, I was gonna change myself. I changed my hair color. I changed the way I dressed. I started pounding on makeup and trying to look older and tougher. I wanted to be that bad bitch that nobody ever f***ed with, you know? I even talked my mom into changing my name from Roxanne to Nikki. I just wanted a fresh start, my rules, my life, my way. I remember sitting there for a week in the mirror every day, just looking at myself and trying to practice different makeup techniques and different ways that I could talk and act and not be vulnerable, not be a target anymore. I had to mentally lock Roxanne up in my mind and not ever let her back out again. So I did it. I pulled it off. I went from Molly Ringwald to Joan Jett overnight. I remember trying to pull it off. My mom wanted me to go to the grocery store to pick up a gallon of milk. I grabbed my leather jacket I'm like looking at myself in the mirror, like, 
okay, we're going to do this, right? Okay, we got it. And I remember walking out the door to my mom in the kitchen. She handed me the money to go and get the milk. And she goes, you look like a f***ing hoodlum. I said, good. That's what I was going for. I lived on a busy street and I walked out the door and I heard a guy like whistling as they went by. And I'm like looking around at first, like, who's he whistling at, you know? And then another car goes by and he's like, hey, are you new in town? Because everybody out there knew each other. And I looked at him and looking around like he's freaking talking to me. I pulled it off. I feel good. Somebody's like looking at me like I'm not dog face anymore. I'm not flatsy patsy. They didn't care about that. They saw at the time I was a pretty girl. And then I walked into the store and I remember seeing two girls that were there that night that beat me up. And I thought, oh shit, here we go. Here we go. They looked at me and I looked at them and I wanted to run. I wanted to just get the hell out of that store as fast as I could. But something in me made me stay. I stood behind them on purpose in the checkout lane. And one of them asked me where I got my jacket. And I said at the mall. And they were like, oh, cool. I really like it. They walked out the door before me. When I was done checking out, I walked out and I looked over. And in the parking lot, I heard them talking and they were all together. And even the girl that punched me in the jaw and broke my jaw, she was there. She even came running up after me. And I thought, oh, shit. I thought I was going to get beat again. I thought she recognized me. When she caught up with me, she asked me for a cigarette because she ran out. I mean, I could feel every bone in my body just quaking, thinking, this is it. I'm going to get beat. And I was like, no, I ran out, too, because I didn't smoke at the time. And she turns, turns and walks away. I wanted to skip home or run home and tell my mom. But when I got there, I told her and she's like, oh, just stay away from those little bitches. To me, it was my first victory of life. It was the first time I had ever felt any kind of gratification about myself, about something that I had done. And it was deceiving another girl, you know, my enemy. I, I was walking somewhere and there was this group of girls sitting on cars and they were drinking what I believed to be brandy at the time. And they were obnoxiously drunk. I just glanced over at them, and I remember one of them asking what the f I was looking at. I just kept walking, and she came running up, and then I heard several more footsteps running up behind me, and I thought, oh shit, here we go. And just taunting, and I asked you a question, what are you looking at? Calling me a bitch, and trying to antagonize another fight. I remember thinking, here we go, she's going to hit me again. She drew her hand back and I watched it coming. Something snapped in me and I just reached up and I grabbed her hand and I blocked her. I twisted her arm up behind her and I kept cranking up on her arm. I got her down to the ground. I was asking her, what are you looking at? What's your problem? She was ready to give right away. I was not in my state of mind. I wasn't consciously doing this. It just happened. Some people say that you black out when you're in a situation like that. But the next thing I know, I had this girl on the ground. I had had enough. Years of torment had built up in me so hard that I snapped. I had her hair knotted up around my fist and I was bashing her face into the sidewalk. I remember seeing blood coming out and her friends are screaming, get off of her, you psycho bitch, and all this other stuff. At that moment, I felt like the spirits were actually maneuvering me, controlling me. That wasn't me because I never had it in me to fight and I kind of liked it. I don't know how else to explain it. It's just not in my DNA to do that type of thing. But they brought this out of me. And I mean, I have to contribute it to the spirits and to the bullying. A person can only take so much shit. I finally let her up and I let her go. She was still laying there bleeding. And one of them said they were gonna call the cops. And I just turned around and I, I looked at her and I was like, 
you know, tell a friend, bitch. I continued having paranormal activity throughout my teen years. I ran away from home to get away from the spirit activity, and that ended really tragically. My friend Debbie, she was really excited for me to come stay with her because she'd never had a sister before. And Debbie was one of these Molly Ringwald type, you know. Everything was pink and purple and girly. She was the exact opposite of what I was at the time. She was just excited to have a friend and somebody coming over to live with her. So I moved in and the spirit activity started acting up even there. And she actually got locked in the bathroom. She went in to brush her teeth and get ready for bed or whatever. All of a sudden I hear the door jiggling and the whole room went black, all lights out. The bedroom and the bathroom that was attached. And she's screaming. She's like, Nikki, this isn't funny. This isn't funny. Let me out. And she's screaming. And I'm like, idiot, unlock the door. She says, it's not locked. I'm trying. I'm trying. And she's like freaking out. It was like maybe five, ten minutes that this lasted. And she's just screaming. And I'm afraid her dad is going to come up there and freak out. And he did. He came bursting through the door. And he's like, what in the hell is going on in here? All of a sudden, the door just was able to be opened. And she's shaking like a leaf. She's like, I don't know what was going on, but I heard people talking in the bathroom with me. I didn't want to tell her that I brought this stuff over. I just kind of let it go. And I really probably shouldn't have because maybe she'd still be here with us. She started hearing it more and more. And she skipped out of school one day, went to her grandma's house. I was done with school. I didn't even go anymore. I dropped out at 15. She was going through some stuff, so she skipped out of school, went to her grandma's house, and then I went somewhere that day, and I come back, and her whole family is freaking out, and they're crying. Turns out she hung herself in her grandma's attic. And she left a note, and I, I actually copied the note down and wrote it in my book, Fire Within Me. She was hearing voices. They were telling her to do bad things. I think she was beginning to be possessed demonically. Her family was a total wreck. I remember going to her funeral, and her mom was, like, sedated. She was on some heavy Valiums. And I remember the smell of the funeral flowers and just wondering from that day forward. I think I got kind of obsessed with death. You know, where do we go? When they put you in the ground, is that it? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Is there purgatory? You have to wonder what's left inside that body. I continued having paranormal activity throughout my adult years. I mean, it never really stopped. It would subside at times where it would calm down. But then when I would start doing something that I enjoyed, and it's still the same to this day, if I'm feeling good about something that I'm doing, they have to snap in there and remind me that they're there. I think the worst of it is the shadow people. I mean, I can handle uh, seeing a spirit or apparition or entity or whatever you want to call it. But when it's the shadow people, that's when it's the worst. They are blacker than the night. You could be sitting in the blackest of rooms and you can still see a shadow person. It really depends on which one that you see. I mean, there's there are hundreds of thousands of shadow people among us. Their size and girth, it varies. I mean, there are some that have to actually arch down in the doorway. Even as a child, in my head, I thought that's the devil. So as an adult, I know that the devil doesn't come to you in red tights and horns and a pitchfork. He comes to you in ways that you need him to come to you. He can come to you as another person. He can come to you as money. He can come to you as an opportunity. The devil is the master of disguise. So I know as an adult that the shadow people are not the devil. 
they're more of an evil entity. One in particular who a lot of people call the hat man, he has lingered in my life since I was very, very little. My grandma says he wasn't real. He was an entity of some sort. My grandma had seen ghosts. My mom had seen ghosts. They both had that ability to see and hear things, but they never let me know until I was in my 30s that they had seen them too. As I described in my book, I wanted so badly to capture it, to prove to people, to prove to my mom, to prove to my grandma, everybody in my life, that you can communicate with spirits and that they were talking and you could hear them. So I went out and I bought this tape recorder I still have one to this day. I always keep one and I'll let it record for the two hours that it records while I'm sleeping to see what I can capture. My mom was really pissed about this. She was like, I don't want you recording anymore and listening to that stuff. She said, nothing good can come of it. She made me promise when I was a teenager that I wouldn't anymore, but I totally did. I never let her know anymore. If somebody doesn't want to hear something, you can't force them to hear it. But I did it because I've always been curious by nature. To hear them, I have recordings to this day where they're like, we have to protect her. Just hearing conversations, you can hear people scream. And I tell my kids, it sounds like people screaming in hell. It's really scary. My son Tony was born when I was just three months shy of turning 17. I didn't go after the dad or anything like that for child support. I really didn't want him in my life at all. But I was determined I was going to raise this child by myself. My stepdad wasn't too fond of the idea of that. He wanted me to have an abortion, but I didn't. And I had it in my head because I've been working since I was 14 years old. You know, I, I used to teach disco dancing at the local disco until what era I was raised in. I also used to give skating lessons, roller boogie at the local skating rink. I was taking care of my child myself. Even when Tony was born, I had incredible amounts of spirit activity going on around me. Uh, it affected my child. One morning in particular, I was making him oatmeal. I turned my back for like a second. He was nowhere near the stove, but all the burners came on on the stove at the same time. Flames shot up about six inches. It, it scared the living hell out of me. I normally don't get scared by spirit activity. But that really freaked me out because if my son had been near the stove where I was cooking, that could have been really bad. I remember that day also getting fed up and I was like, I'm getting out of the house. So I was going to take Tony and we were going to leave. And I went into my room with my son in my arms and my whole room was destroyed. Furniture was flipped. My bed was across the room. Clothes were strewn about. My tape recorder was across the room. I've got cassette tapes that I was recording on. The ribbon was pulled out of the tapes. My mom thought it was because I was going back to listening to the, the recordings again. I grabbed some clothes, got my son dressed in the living room, and we left that day. We were out of there. I wasn't dealing with it. I met my husband when I was 17. I already had my son, Tony. I was content being alone. I had dated other guys, and then I met Wayne. I was just at home, sitting there alone, and somebody was at the door. So I go down there, and it's this girl that I knew from high school. Her and her husband were there, and they wanted me to come hang out and talk. So we were sitting out in the front yard. I was nothing done with my hair, nothing done with my makeup. I was wearing these gray corduroy pants and this flannel type shirt. And I'm just sitting there barefoot talking to these two people on my front lawn. And we sat there for a while talking and I noticed that there was this guy in a red pickup truck and he was trying to pretend that he was busy, you know, digging things out of the back of his truck and stuff. And I was like, who is that? And she said, that's my husband's brother, Wayne. I was like, okay, didn't really pay too much attention to him. They all left. 
maybe an hour or two later, I get a phone call from her and she's like, um, remember that guy that was by the truck? And I said, yeah, he wants to know if you want to go out tonight. And I didn't know what to say. I wasn't really looking for a relationship or to go out with anybody. I'm like, I guess. We went out that night and he didn't stop calling me from that day forward. We were married three months later. I didn't tell my husband about any spirit activity until somewhere between 12 and 15 years after we got married. We all have our secrets, <laughs> but what are you going to say? I mean, even though you love the guy, are you going to say, hey, dude, guess what? I see ghosts. That could have been the end. If I didn't experience it for myself and somebody else told me, it's, it's kind of like when people tell me about aliens. I sit there and I think to myself, oh, here we go. You know, <laughs> and I have to take that into account when people are talking to me about aliens. I have to ask myself, what do you think they think about your ghosts? And he kind of smirks and giggles a little bit like, oh, OK, and I have to prove it to him. And to this day, after 42 years of marriage, I still have to go, Wayne, come here, you gotta see this, you know? And I'll set up my flashlights and I'm having this conversation with the spirit. And he's like, okay. And I said, no, listen. And I'll say, all right, if somebody's in the room, light up the red flashlight. Cause I've got a red flashlight, a black flashlight and a blue one. I'm like, light up the red one. Boom, that red flashlight comes on. And he's even waved his hand over the flashlight and he's stomped his foot to see if vibration sets it off. Now he really tries to debunk everything I do. But he came to me last week and he said to me, you know what, I think your spirits are trying to talk to me. And I said, why? He said, because I was laying there watching TV and I hear somebody right next to me and they were going, Wayne, and he says, I muted the TV because he thought maybe I called him. He says, I heard it like two more times. He says, so I don't know what they want. Want to find out what they want for me? <laughs> but uh, he's finally starting to come around. There have been times that my husband Wayne has experienced things and he didn't know what to make of it. You know, he's got the mind of a skeptic. I believe that people with closed minds, people that refuse to believe are the ones that don't see. So he's experienced doors opening and closing, lights turning on or off by themselves. One time we were sitting there having a conversation and all of a sudden the lamp next to us started flickering. And I was like, okay. So he gets up and he checks the plug. He checks the bulb, make sure it's tight. And then we'd start talking and it would start like flashing to the syllables of the words that we were saying. That really messed with him. He didn't know what to make of that. Um, another time my husband calls me and he still calls me Roxanne. He's like, Roxanne, come here. I'm like, why? He said, the light keeps flashing on and off. I said, did you check the plug? He goes, yeah, I checked the plug. It's not that. And it was a touch lamp. Something was over there touching the light and turning it on and off. So I, I said, all right, if somebody's here, turn the light on. And the light turned on and it stopped flashing. I said, all right, now show Wayne that you're here by turning the light off. And it turned the light off and it would answer intelligently. I said, are you a, a woman? And it turned on. So, cause light means yes and dark means no, but it would answer intelligently. And he's like, all right, I want the lamp out of the room because I don't even want it in here anymore. If they can touch it and turn it on, I don't want it here. In 1981, I had my daughter, Missy. I had been married for a year. With each one of my kids, the spirit activity would subside for a while, but then it would pick up again. I ended up having eight kids total. My last one, Destiny, she was born in 2001. But I think the thing that sticks out to me the most was when I had my daughter Haley in 1993. She was about three months old. I had started having some real bad spirit activity around the house. I was sharing a room with her at the time. It was my husband and I, and the crib was at the foot of the bed. And I went in to get her because she was waking up from her nap, and the door slammed in my face. 
I opened the door. I went to pick her up, and as I went to pick her up, the stereo turned on by itself and started scanning through radio stations. I knew that somebody was trying to get my attention, and it freaked me out because I don't like that stuff around my kids. I don't care if the spirits interact with me, but leave my kids alone. I'm like a mama bear. I grabbed my daughter and I jumped on my bed and I called my mom. I decided I was going to finally confront her and ask her about spirits. Do you believe in spirits? Well, hell yeah, I believe in ghosts. And I said, have you ever seen any? She says, yeah, I've seen them. So has grandma. Why did you let me go all those years? You wanted me to not believe in it. You didn't want to talk about it. If I told you I saw something, you poo-pooed it and said, no, it, it was your imagination or it was you waking up from a dream. And that's when she said, what do you want me to tell you? That they were going to get you? After Haley, I had my son, Donnie, and Mason and Destiny. Mason was a very unique child. Even under two years old, his first word was Mary. I had a picture of the Blessed Mother, Mary, on the wall behind the couch. He would reach his hand out to her and he'd say, Mary. So I had this one experience. I'm uh, very active with the veterans in Wisconsin. Every year I hold a national POW MIA recognition day event. It was in 2005 that this actually happened. National POW MIA recognition day is the third Friday of every September. I hold my events on that day and we're the only event in the state of Wisconsin. So we had this routine. We would go up there, we'd set up tables, we'd serve veterans food all day long. I would get there at like eight o'clock in the morning and we wouldn't leave until like 10, 11 o'clock at night. And we hold it right on the main drag, Highway 100 up in Hales Corners, Wisconsin. So we'd set up the tables at eight o'clock in the morning, set up the food. We would stand curbside with POW flags and American flags and signs in recognition of the day. My favorite sign is no man is dead until he's forgotten. And I hold that sign. My daughter, Missy, and all my kids partake in the whole thing. We usually have anywhere between 50 and 150 veterans up there at one time. They bring the deuce and a half. They bring military vehicles. And we just hoop it up. People honk as they go by. Well, this particular day in 2005, I remember standing there curbside holding my sign. It used to be an old Kmart, and now it was a vacant lot. So we'd park there and people would stop and they'd ask Missy, what's going on? What are you guys doing? She'd tell them. And this one particular day, I see through my peripheral vision, a white pickup truck. It was an older Ford pickup truck. It had to be like a, a 78 or a 79 Ford pickup. And it was white. And I noticed it because it was meticulous. There was no rust on it. The tires looked new for crying out loud. And I remember seeing a guy, he had shoulder length brown hair and he got out of the truck and he walked up to Missy. Instantly I see in the passenger seat next to him is this amazingly beautiful German Shepherd and it's sitting there all proud and it's looking at his master. I'm more paying attention to the dog than the man. So the man walks up to Missy and is talking to her for a few minutes. The next thing I know, she's walking towards me with this guy. And I'm like, oh, criminy, what did I do wrong? You know, what does he want? Well, he comes over and he says, I've been waiting so long to meet you. And I was like, okay, weirdo. But he grabs my hand to shake my hand. And I just felt this sense of calm. I, I can't even explain it. And he introduced himself. He said his name was Alan Gardner. He's like, I'd love to meet your family. So I introduced him to my family, take him over by my mom. My mom is sitting in this lawn chair and he looks down at her and he's talking to her and he's shaking her hand and all this other stuff. He was claiming to be a veteran. He claims he was in Vietnam. Now, mind you, this man did not look a day over 30. 
not a day. He was younger than me. Something was off about this guy. I kind of wanted to hurry him along. This was for me and my veterans, the families that were left behind when the POWs and the MIAs were unaccounted for. So he finally leaves and he says, what time is the candlelight vigil? Because we always had a candlelight vigil at dusk. We told him what time, probably gonna be like seven, eight o'clock. He's like, I'll be back. I was like, oh, goody. And he gets in his truck and he drives away. Well, we went on with the day, didn't even give him a second thought. At the end of the day, it started getting dark. So I started handing out candles and such. All of a sudden he just appears out of nowhere. And he's wearing the green army fatigues and he's got dog tags hanging around his neck. We lined up, how we do it is we get in a prayer circle first. We light our candles off of one another. I always say the same thing. As we light these candles, as each flame touches the next, let the spirits connect with us as well. We said the prayer, I gave my speech, and we lined up in a straight line. It's beautiful, we've got this guy, he's a veteran, and he takes pictures of all of this, and he puts it on a disc for my computer, and then I download it. There were no more than 50 of us there that night. Now, it was like 95 degrees that day, so as you can imagine, at night it's probably still like 80, 83 degrees. Out of nowhere, I'm freezing cold, and I didn't understand why. He's standing on my right side. All of a sudden, my candle goes out. There's no wind. And he goes, let me light that for you. And he takes his candle, touches it to mine, and as it lights, I get this splitting pain in my head. And I'm like, what in the hell is going on? And everything went black. I couldn't see anything. It it was complete darkness, but I could see like smoke billowing in the air. And he takes his jacket off and he puts it around my shoulders. And then I start hearing men screaming bloody murder. It was horrific. It was like screams of hell. And I'm hearing little kids crying. I hear guns going off, big guns, rapid firing. And I said, oh my God, my head. This Alan Gardner said, wait, it gets worse. And I'm seeing dead bodies of little kids and men laying all over the place. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know he was doing this to me. My skull felt like it was ripping off. I mean, I've had migraines in my life. This was like 200 migraines all built into one night. I thought I was gonna die. I was crying, tears were pouring down my face. I blew out my candle and I had to break. I said, I can't do this, we need to go. And I told my kids, pack up, I need to get the hell out of here, something is going on. So they started packing up and Alan was over talking to the other veterans. Now the other veterans, they all look like they're in their 70s or whatever, you know, they're older guys. This Alan Gardner guy looked younger than me. He did not look a day over 30. He's sitting there with these men talking about the places that he served in. They were talking about, oh, I was here. He's like, yeah, I was there too. He was naming names. He said, I fought my last battle there. That's how he worded it. They were nice to him, but they were looking at him like, you're a weenie, you're fake. We had these POW MIA posters and I still have it to this day. And he signed it, USMC and the years that he served. As we were wrapping it up for the night, he came over again and shook my hand. He's talking to me and he's like, you're going through some really difficult times and that's about to change. Okay, how do you know that? He said something to the effect of, you're gonna be having a move soon. I was like, okay. I said, I've been looking for a house. I said, but we don't have the credit for it. We can't afford to even buy a pack of gum on credit. He said, that's about to change. And then he started walking away. He thanked us and everything. He walked into the Kmart parking lot. And as he walked away, now mind you, it was like nine o'clock at night and it was dark, but there was lights from the parking lot. He walked straight down the aisle and frickin' disappeared. 
not even two weeks later, my mortgage broker called me and she's like, Nikki, you're not going to believe this. You've been approved for $300,000 mortgage loan. I freaked out so bad. I said, there has to be a mistake. You better go back and check. She's like, I triple check, Nikki. You got it. She said, let's start shopping for houses. And that's when we got this house. I cannot explain it any other way. I mean, the next day, we always watch the video footage and look at all the pictures on the computer of the day before from the POW event. We were scanning through and I just had this little 20 inch TV. It was up on top of the refrigerator in the kitchen. The computer was hooked up to it so that we could see the pictures. I could not believe the things that we were seeing. At one point, like I said, we had 50 veterans in that line, 50 people total of the, the candlelight vigil. On the pictures, there were hundreds and hundreds of candles lit. You could see people but they weren't there. It was like shadow images of people. I had a photographer friend look at it and he said, that's not like double imaging you can get on the old cameras and stuff. He said, that's not what this was. He says, these are different and distinct people standing there holding all these candles. Also, it showed a headstone. There was a picture of a military helmet with a guy it was just a skeleton man. And he had a crack across his forehead and the helmet. There were pictures of little Vietnamese type children. And it was just unexplainable. And we're sitting here and we're looking at this and Missy's freaking out. She's like, where did these pictures come from? I said, these are the pictures that he took on his camera. He's a professional photographer. We couldn't explain it. We, we were freaking out. We we're like, look at this one. Look at that one. Looking at all these different pictures. And then all of a sudden, Missy says, Mom, is your Mary statue supposed to be bleeding? I had these little pewter statues, and I still have them to this day. And they're about three inches tall. One's of Jesus and one is Mary. And they were sitting on my counter. Well, Mary was oozing this black stuff. It was the same consistency as blood. It wasn't thin like water. It wasn't thick like tar or anything like that. It was just this black substance coming out of the pewter statue. And Missy's taking a paper towel and she's wiping it off and it's oozing more. More black is coming out of it. And I'm like, well, what the heck, you know? She tried rinsing it under water. She tried using Dawn dish soap. She'd dry it again. And more of this black ooze was coming out of it. Well, my son, Vic, he takes the statue. He's like, I don't want to be sacrilegious, but I have to do this, mom. We have to do this. We go outside, he goes out and grabs a drill and he takes the statue and he's drilling into the bottom because he wants to see what's inside this statue. He drilled about an inch in and it was just pewter. There was nothing inside of it. And then it stopped oozing the black. I've got eight kids. They're all freaking out. They're all screaming. They think the devil is coming for them. You know, the end of the world, all kinds of shit. So I gather my kids up and I was like, no, get in the house right now. So we go in the house and I've got rosaries hanging all around my house because of the spirit activity, thinking I'm going to be able to ward it off or something. They're all facing backwards now, facing the wall. My daughter looks over at the wood crucifix and it's hanging upside down on the wall. So they go running back out the house again, swearing to God that they're never going back in there again because the house is evil and all this other stuff. I had to call my mom. I was like, mom, you need to come over here. You need to look at these pictures. You need to see what's going on here. She came over and I mean, she witnessed it. She can't explain it. I can't explain it. We started trying to put the pictures together. He claimed he was a carpenter by trade at that time. And I'm looking through the pictures. I'm like, okay, he's got a tape measure on his hip and it says 25 feet. So I'm putting things together and I'm looking at the picture, him standing over my mom who's sitting in the chair and they've got these electrical towers right nearby. Froze the picture and I showed Miss, I said, what do you see? Do you see the tower? She goes, yeah. 
I said, do you see the way Alan Gardner is standing, bent down, looking at Yaya? That's what we call grandma. Yeah. I said, now let's move the picture over, enlarge it. So all you see is the tower and him. What do you see? She goes, that's the exact picture on the POW flag. We even went there. We measured from the tower to the exact spot where Alan Gardner was standing. And it was 25 feet. That was the carpenter ruler. We tried looking him up. I called every Alan Gardner in the state of Wisconsin, and none of them are him. We just don't know where he came from, why he would say, I've been waiting so long to meet you, still confuses me to this day. I still keep that poster. And every year that we went back after that to have the POW event, I waited on bated breath. I was like, come on, let Alan Gardner show up again. Because I had so many questions for him. Where do you come from? How old are you? I want to see your birth certificate. I stopped doing the POW events back in like 2019 because I'm, I'm just, I can't do it anymore, you know? We haven't seen him since. Katie was my son's fiance. They were living together. She was a beautiful girl. But one day things started getting kind of weird. I don't want to say that she had a nervous breakdown because I don't believe that's what it was. I believe she was actually possessed. She started telling my son, Vic, that she was God. He's like, what the f do you mean you're God? I mean, it just happened overnight that she just like flipped this switch. It was really creepy. She really believed she was God. And she had everybody convinced that she was controlling their thoughts. My daughter, Haley, she was living with her boyfriend at the time. They were sleeping together in the same bed. And she was so freaked out by this stuff that was going on, all the paranormal activity. And she turned and looked at Dwight and he was there, but it wasn't him. It was Katie's face on Dwight. And she even had to do a double take. I was laying in my bed the same night and, well, what I thought was Katie comes walking into my room and I had one of those old-fashioned wingback chairs. She pulled it up close to the bed and she sat there looking at me and she told me that we were all going to die, that she was going to kill us. Talking all kinds of crazy things, it freaked me out so bad I couldn't move. I was frozen. In fact, whatever it was, made it so that I couldn't move. I couldn't move a muscle, I couldn't blink, I couldn't do anything until she was done talking and then she just walked out of the room like nothing. And the next day I called my son Vic and I told him, you're not gonna believe what happened here. Well, I got something to tell you too. And I told him my story and he said, well, she was sitting on the edge of the bed rocking for over a half hour. And when she was done, she said she was talking to you. And it was at the same exact time, at 3.33 in the morning. It was really messed up. We didn't know how to deal with her. We called the police because we thought she was snapped and needed to go to mental health. I'm a firm believer in people getting mental health help. The cops wouldn't touch her at first. They were like, she thinks she's got a big deal. As long as she's not a dinosaur and you know stomping out traffic, it's good. They ended up finally taking her in, but they released her. They said there was nothing that they could do, that she's fine because she was answering all the right questions. But she was even messing with a couple of the cops' minds in the cop car, saying that she knows what they were thinking and she would tell them what they were thinking. My daughter and I went to see this psychic. Her name was Sylvia Brown. It was in Menominee, Wisconsin. We actually worked for her for that weekend. She paid for our room and everything and gave us free readings. And Sylvia Brown was telling me all about my grandma and that my grandma Rose was sorry that she didn't get to say goodbye to me. She even mentioned the garnet ring that I gave to my grandma for Mother's Day. I was really touched and I was like, wow, she's really great. And I came home and I told my family about it. And not long after that, Sylvia Brown passed. And then Katie, she looked at me and she said, that psychic bitch had to go. She knew too much. I don't know what to make of that, if I should believe that she had something to do with it. 
Katie's fine now. It's like it never happened. She talks to us normally now and everything. She says, I know that I wasn't myself. She said, I felt like foggy, like I was drunk or high. She said, I don't really remember what I said. She says, I remember parts of it, but not all of it. She's okay now, and I have a grandson with her. He's a beautiful boy, and everything is fine now. I mean, she still does see spirit activity and stuff, but nothing like being possessed. I've had people ask me, why you? Why do you think you were chosen to be able to hear and see and smell or just sense that somebody has passed or that they're there? And I really don't know the answer to it, but I don't think I'm special. I know there's a lot of people out there that have these same gifts, I guess you'd call them, but they don't talk about them. I've tried shutting off these gifts many times. I've written about it in my book where I just try to ignore it. No matter what I hear, no matter what I see, no matter what I smell, I just try to ignore it and I go about my business, but then it gets worse. The thing that made me start writing my book, I'd always written. I mean, from the time that I could scribble my alphabet, I wanted to write. Before I even learned how to read, I told my mom I wanted to be a writer. So I taught myself how to read through phonetics. I was always in a higher level of reading when I was growing up. English was my major. But one day my son came to me and he said, Mom, I know you're my mom. I know dad's my dad, but we don't really know you. We don't know who you are because I never talked about any of this stuff. I never told them about my abilities or anything like that. My mom knew, my dad knew, my grandma knew, but my kids really didn't until I started writing the book. And that's when my daughter, Missy, started having her abilities. She could tell when somebody had died in a certain place and I had to explain it to her it was really hard for her to deal with, but each one of my kids has these gifts and my grandchildren. So that's why I started writing the book. I wanted my son and the rest of my children to know who I was. So anyway, I contacted my local library and they wanted the books, but they made me change the book because I said, this book is a true story. And they said, you, you got to change that to fiction. And I said, but it's not fiction. They said, well, we're not putting it on our shelves if you say it's real. And I said, okay, so I changed it to a fictional story based on true events. Mr. Christopher Wants to See You was actually written about my grandma Rose and her four sisters that actually did end up in an orphanage. The prologue where it explains it is all true. When I wrote Fire Within Me, I never intended to publish it. I was writing it so to, like I was explaining it to my kids, you know? Um, and I never, ever intended to publish it. Never. Mason's the one who actually sent it in. That's one of the most naturally great books I've ever read. Well, I really appreciate that you took your Sunday and gave up your time and did this. Oh, it's incredible. Thank you for everything, hon. Bye-bye. <laughs>